0: Amen. Well, as you are standing, why don't you turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as we look at today's text that we're going to be covering. We are going to be uh, doing something a little bit unique. We are going to be dipping into both chapter 1 and chapter 2. So we're going to finish off chapter 1 and go right into chapter two, because that is the way the text and the context is going. So we're going to read verses 23 down to verse four. Verse 23 down to verse four. This is what the Lord and his word says, beginning in verse 23, but I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth, not that we lorded over your faith, But are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have, especially for you. Let's pray one more time. Father, we do uh, come before you today Lord, and we humble ourselves in Your sight as we ask You, dear God, for Your blessing upon our time and Your Word. We thank You for the marvelous truths that we sing about, that all blessing, all glory, all honor is owing to Your name. Father, we cannot sing those words if we do not mean it. And God, we pray that as Your Word penetrates our heart, that we would have a genuine heart of worship before you today. Lord, help us to put into practice the words that we hear right here in this passage. Help us to be doers and not hearers only. We pray for your blessing on our time. Please help me, God, and give me a mouth to speak your truth, Lord. We ask that you would bless our worship in your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last, uh, last Lord's Day, we looked at a different subject dealing with the unity of the church, and we entitled that the triune unity of the church because we saw uh, from verses uh, 21 and 22 that the entire Godhead was involved in bringing about the unity of the Corinthian believers. That God was at work in them, establishing them, anointing them, and confirming them in their faith, and sealing them for uh, the purpose of knowing Christ and of being united with one another. And so now I want to look at a different subject, one that is really near and dear to my heart. Be quite honest with you, it's with great selfishness that I approached this text, because it has everything to do with the minister's heart. And the people's hearts, so you get to share a little bit in my selfishness as well. But really, uh, the message I've entitled uh, this uh, passage is uh, the apostolic joy of the church. And we have to call it that because we are dealing with an apostle. This is the Apostle Paul, and center stage of this passage is his joy. And so we're looking at the apostolic joy of the church but that will quickly translate into our joy today. And so I want to begin by looking at uh, three things that all have to do with this issue of joy and Paul's joy and how he, he, he aimed for that joy. And it really amazed me as I looked at this passage that all, the, the whole aim of ministry is joy. And if a ministry is not driven by a pursuit, of joy, it will be a deficient ministry. It will be a dysfunctional ministry. At the uppermost in the heart of a pastor should be the joy of his people. And so to prove that, Paul gives us several elements. Number one, about a joy-producing ministry. And the very first thing I want to point out is that a joy-producing ministry is not heavy-handed. You see that right here from verses 23 to 24. He says, let's read that again. He says, I call God as my witness or a witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth, not that we lorded over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your joy... You are standing firm. And so the Apostle Paul is uh, writing with great earnestness to get across this issue that uh, despite what the Corinthians might be thinking in their minds, despite whatever misunderstandings were going on, he wants to make it clear to them that he is not a heavy handed shepherd. Brothers and sisters, I can think of nothing worse than a heavy handed pastor. The reason why is because of the incredible responsibility that has been given to him by God Almighty. I can think of nothing worse than a shepherd that beats the sheep that he has been entrusted with. He's been entrusted with the sheep to care for the sheep. You remember what Jesus told Peter there on the shore of Galilee as he's restoring him once again to the ministry. What did he say? Peter, if you love me, tend my sheep, right? Feed my lambs, tend my flock. See, the the job of a shepherd is to guide, to lead, to shepherd, to care, to nurture God's people that have been entrusted to him. Far be it that he should take the crook and use it as a device of abuse. So quite to the contrary, the Apostle Paul is making it very clear that he has not and will not execute ministry in this way. If you look all the way back to chapter 1, verse 12, you remember there that he said that in the church and in the world, he conducted himself in a very godly manner. He said he conducted himself with godly sincerity and with holiness. And that's the way that he conducted himself in the church. Now, there in verse 12, you remember he calls his conscience to testify to that very thing. See, Paul's conscience was clear that despite the things that were being leveled against him, his conscience had remained pure in the sight of God. And now he calls in, if you would, a second witness. He says here, I call God as witness to my soul. Now, friends, that's a very drastic and a very uh, very uh, serious oath, is it not? To call God as a witness to your soul. He literally says, I call God to be witness upon my soul, is how he says it. And so the Apostle Paul, if he was lying, if he was misleading the church, boy, the ramifications of this oath could be disastrous for his ministry. But he was not lying. He was telling the truth. And he was calling God to be the witness of his manner his conduct among the church. Now look here more to the motivation behind this. He says, to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. So that's the reason why the Apostle Paul had to sort of switch up his travel plans. You remember that that's what they were accusing him of, of sort of arbitrarily making decisions, of making saying yes with one side of his mouth and saying no with the other side of his mouth. The Apostle Paul is saying, no, I haven't conducted myself in that manner. As a matter of fact, all of, all of my ministry was affirmed. It was yes in Christ. And you need look no further than God and what he did in the gospel when he came to the Corinthians through Paul, through Silvanus, through Timothy, through the preaching of the gospel. And so Paul is saying, look, I have other motives for changing up my travel plans, and one of the motives was to spare them. Now, this language of sparing them uh, sort of conjures up the idea that Paul is sort of having mercy on this church. He is allowing for time to develop so that things can kind of be smoothed out, the relationship between him and the Corinthians. You remember that scholars say that between the writing of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Uh, The letter that Paul is talking about here in chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1, and in other places, is the letter that many refer to as Paul's severe letter. Instead of going to them and paying them another painful visit, a visit that he already had paid paid them earlier, instead of going there and visiting them again and causing more sorrow and interacting in a more disciplinary tone, he wrote to them instead, but he wrote to them in a severe manner. He wrote to them, as we'll learn, in such a manner that it caused them sorrow. He was, he was straightforward. He was stern because the Apostle Paul was not afraid of executing uh, corrective discipline or formative discipline in the church, formative discipline being more of that discipleship discipline that comes through the regular means of, of operating in, a, in, a, in the teaching ministry and the discipleship ministry of the church, and, of course, corrective discipline is that discipline that seems to, seeks to correct a sinning or erring brother or sister in the church. But listen, to show you that sometimes Paul uh, uses this disciplinary tone in his letters as a way to chastise somebody who's an error, he says in 1 Corinthians 4.21, he says, "'What do you desire, that I would come with you with the rod?' or with the with love and with a spirit of gentleness. So see there, Paul is not afraid to operate in that disciplinary tone. He's not afraid to come and to not spare them. As he says later on in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 13, he says, Look, if there are those who will not desist from sinning, he says, I will not spare anyone if that's what needs to take place. He says in chapter 12, verse 20 of 2 Corinthians he says look perhaps i will come to you and i will find you not to be what i want you to be and that will result in this that you will find me not to be what you want me to be in other words loving gentle as a as a shepherd that can be gentle with them but instead he says perhaps he will have to, cl- he'll have to come in a disciplinary tone again because there are strifes, there are divisions, there are jealousies, there are angry tempers, as he says. There's disputes, gossips, arrogance, disturbances. It is those issues that will bring discipline. And that's the way that God disciplines us in our own lives. It is only upon our own sin that God has to bring in chastisement. It is only because God so loves us that he has to correct us like any loving father would correct his own child. But Paul's point is this, that though he did not fear to come to them with a disciplinary tone or in a posture of discipline, as as we're going to see actually beginning in chapter 2 verse 5 as he talks about there the brother that was an heir, that was apparently in sin and that was opposing him, that's not at the very bottom of Paul's heart. That's not what Paul really wants for them. That's not the deepest motivation for the Apostle Paul. Paul wanted them to know that he was motivated not out of a desire to take advantage of them or to be harsh with them, but out of a desire to bless them. Listen to what he says emphatically. He says, not that we lord it over your faith. And so when they... so. Paul is very wise here because when he brings in the idea of sparing them, that automatically implies that he could be talking about not sparing them one day. And of course he does. But he's saying, look, don't interpret the language of sparing you as me threatening you like a tyrant or some sort of domineering spiritual figure over your life. He says, no, 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 no. We don't lord it over you. We don't lord it over your faith. That wasn't Paul's motivation. He wasn't heavy-handed in the ministry. In other words, Paul didn't use his apostolic authority. The authority that he had invested in him by God. God had put that authority in him, and Paul didn't use that authority. He didn't want to use it to take advantage of them. That's what he says in chapter 7. He says, we took advantage of no one. You know, heavy-handed shepherds, abusive shepherds, Always abuse people because they want to selfishly get certain things. Either they want to abuse them financially because they want to fleece the flock. They want to devour the flock through sordid gain, what Paul tells Timothy. Sordid gain, a greed, a lust for money or power or influence or whatever it may be. Paul says, we took advantage of no one. Paul's manner in the ministry was selfless. And he was gratified only upon their mutual joy with one another. He doesn't lord it over them, but he serves with them, working with them. And as a matter of fact, as 2 Corinthians is going to develop, you're going to find out that there are those shepherds there. Apparently, there are those influences there in Corinth that actually were lording over the Corinthians. There were those false teachers that were actually guilty of taking advantage of them. For example, 2 Corinthians 11:20, 20, the apostle Paul says, for you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you. Talking about the influence of these false apostles. He says, if anyone devours you, if anyone takes advantage of you, you, if anyone exalts himself, if anyone hits you in the face, sort of a hyperbole for, look, you even endure these false teachers who, who in essence slap you in the face with their manner and the way that they shepherd you. And the word that he uses here, to lord over, is not a mistake. I think it works in perfect tandem with the word to be their fellow worker. So the word there, to lord over, comes from the word kurios, which means lord. So he says, look, we do not lord over you. We don't take the position of a lord, far be it from that. As a matter of fact, he says, we take the, the position of a servant. He says, of a fellow worker, this Greek word sunergos. He says, we work alongside of you. And I think that is so beautiful. I think that's so telling of a healthy church, of a healthy ministry, that you as a minister, that me as a pastor, as a shepherd, my desire is not to come on top of anyone to push you down, to look down your nose, to kind of dictate down to you what to do, but it should be in the spirit of a fellow worker, striving together for the same thing, having the same ambition, the same heart, the same intent, one purpose. You remember what Paul told the Corinthians earlier. He summed up his whole ministry among them, not as a Lord, but as a servant. He says in 1 Corinthians 3.5, he says, What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. That is all that the minister really is. So if he ever comes to be in a point of self-aggrandizement, where he becomes self-puffed up or self-elated... Let him understand that his job is simply to be a servant. He says, we are just your servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity. Which means what? Had the Lord not even given us opportunity, we'd have no spiritual influence in your life in the first place. No, All true ministry is owing unto the sovereign hand of God that ordains and appoints ministers as He sees fit, as the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit Himself sees fit to gift individuals in the church. And apart from that, brothers and sisters, you cannot be appointed as a pastor, as an elder, as an overseer, as a shepherd of anyone. God has to do it. You cannot fight your way to a position of power Hopefully, you would never manipulate your way in a position of influence. It is either given to you by God and affirmed by the people of God, or you don't have it. And Paul says, look, the only reason we have it is because the Lord has given us opportunity it's given Paul the opportunity to be a fellow worker with them, to work and strive together with them for their joy. That's why he is doing everything that he is doing. He is seeking joy in it. But I want to I share one thing that's very critical for us to understand, that when Paul says, we are workers together with you for your joy, brothers and sisters, he doesn't just mean any sort of joy the joy that you might derive by your finances or material possessions or uh, a certain career or a certain hobby or a certain ambition in life. No, no, no. This is spiritual joy, spiritual joy, spiritual things. This is the joy that comes in a sanctified life. This is a joy that comes in the pursuit of God. That's the joy that he's talking about. That's the only joy he cares about. He cares about a a biblical joy. We may call it the joy of the Lord, the joy of our salvation, brothers and sisters. That is the joy that he is seeking to cultivate in them, the joy of sanctification. And biblical joy is amazing, isn't it? It's not happiness so that the, the, the Greek word cannot be defined simply as being happy. Because happiness, if you search the etymology of that word, it literally comes from the word "happen chance," which means that your emotional state is derived on your circumstances. Depending if circumstances go well with you, then you're happy. Depending if things are okay, depending if the bills are paid, if the job is secure, if the ministry is thriving, if the pews are full, if the tithes are plentiful, then we're happy, right? No, brothers and sisters, biblical joy is indomitable joy. Biblical joy is persevering joy. Biblical joy is the joy that perseveres in the face and in the furnace of affliction. The way the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, Paul commends the church there for enduring their trials with joy. That's the kind of joy that we need. That's the only kind of joy that is going to make our lives stable, secure, consistent, and steadfast. Notice that is the very thing that he is commending them for. That is the only reason why he is even willing to work together with them for their joy, because they are standing fast. See that last phrase? We are workers with you for your joy. For, and that little word there is deeply explanatory, because, in other words, in your faith you are standing firm. Now, there's a way that you can translate this Greek phrase to mean in the faith. Because it has the Greek article, you could translate it because you are standing faith, standing firm in the faith. A lot of Fs in that sentence. Because you're standing firm in the faith. More naturally, however, it has to do with with them on a more personal level, so probably referring to the fact that they have kept up, as Jonathan Edwards would say, they have kept up religion in their own souls. They're staying faithful to the gospel. But really, how inseparable is that, right? How inseparable from your, of your, your personal faith in Christ is your personal faithfulness to the gospel? They are one and the same. They are two sides of the same coin, brothers and sisters. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, look, that is my reason, my cause to continue to work for your joy. And oh, what work it was. What work it was. It was not for Paul to work for their joy, to sit in a nice air-conditioned room around a board of of elders sitting there sipping on their lattes and thinking about how they can grow the church. That's not, brothers and sisters, the work that that Paul has envisioned here. Paul suffered greatly for the sake of this church He endured the great Asiatic trial that he talked about in chapter 1, verse 8. Remember when he says, we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of the affliction that came upon us in Asia. That we were burdened excessively beyond strength and that we despaired even of life. We all know the missionary labors of the Apostle Paul. That's what he has in mind. That because there is authentic faith over there in Corinth, I will continue to endure those sufferings for the sake of God's elect. For the sake of God's people in Corinth. The Lord Jesus Christ encouraged the Apostle Paul himself, Acts chapter 18, with that very thing. He says, Paul, I have many people. I have many people in that city. He was always encouraging Paul of the fact that he had for him a bountiful harvest of souls. Sometimes I wish the Lord would do that for us, right? There are a great many souls in South Lake. Keep going down there. But we know that God has his people everywhere, and so we preach the gospel everywhere. And Paul knew that God had his faithful in Corinth, and therefore Paul did not throw in the towel on these people. On these brothers, on these believers, but he became their fellow worker, their fellow worker, and it shows two different things. It shows that first of all, that Paul was willing to stand by them and to work with them, and if that is the case, then the false accusations they have brought and leveled against them are not true. He was actually, he actually has their uh, their ultimate joy in mind. He was not lording over them because he had their joy in mind. And as a matter of fact, this statement here, when he says, you are standing firm in the faith, also shows that upon any level or any measure of grace in a church, the Apostle Paul was ready, almost eager, to affirm that church. And I think that is a wonderful trait of any ministry that you affirm faithfulness in your people. We should be a people of affirmation, I tell you. We should be ready to build one another. This is so needed today, I can't tell you how many times, I think probably because of uh, the Internet and um, Facebook. Well, I'm not on Facebook, but, well, actually I am because of the book. But uh, I would never actually go on Facebook and do something uh, but uh, I guess it just makes it easier for us to all be connected. I think that's, that's a blessing and a curse, you know, because I don't think we were meant to know what's going on everywhere at all times, you know. I don't really, you know, my wife, she's much more tech savvy than I am, so she comes in all the time and gives me these reports, all the things that are going on on Facebook and just, uh, you know, all, all sorts of things, tragedies, people that have car accidents and people that need prayer, and that's good and grand. But you also find out about divisions. You also find out about things going on in the kingdom, leaders in the church in this, in this area of the evangelical church, and this fighting it out on something, getting at each other, biting and devouring one another. And I tell you what, this word of affirmation is needed now more than ever. I pray that God doesn't have to unite us through persecution in order for us to begin to love one another the way that we should. Because radical Islam is coming. The gay agenda is at an all-time militant frenzy. And God may have to do those very things in order for us to learn what Jesus said in John thirteen thirty-five: By your love, they will know that you are my disciples. The second thing that Paul does in his ministry or his joy-producing ministry, is that joy-producing ministry seeks for a mutual joy. You see that? It wasn't just enough for Paul to be happy. It wasn't just enough for Paul to be filled with joy. They had to reciprocate that joy. Look at verses 1 to 3. He says, But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you so that when i came i would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice having confidence in you all having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all so see paul is not simply satisfied with being right with proving this point he's not content until the church achieves its joy and so the church can get out of that funk that it's in and experience apostolic joy again, to be in a right relationship with Paul again, to be firmly rooted and grounded in the apostolic tradition again. Because that is what's happening here. Make no mistake about it. A move away from Paul is a move away from the gospel. It's a move away from apostolic authority and apostolic doctrine. That's why Paul has such great angst to get things right. Look at the word that he uses here. He says, look, after saying, I don't derive my joy from people being made sorrowful. See, the aim of my ministry is not to make you sorrowful because then I won't get any joy. But he says this in verse 3. He says, I would not have sorrow from those that ought to make me rejoice. The church has a necessity placed upon them to please their leaders. That's absolutely true. The the language here is explicit. Paul says, it must be this way. And he uses this this little Greek word, day, which means necessity. Oftentimes it's used for divine necessity. When God places divine necessity upon somebody, he uses that little Greek word there. And here Paul says, look, there is absolute necessity placed upon you. To do what? To bring me joy. Or as one translator uh, tried to sort of bear out the meaning by saying that you should have cheered me up. (laughs) But I think it's more than that, isn't it? It's this biblical joy. He's saying, you ought to have brought me joy. Literally, it says this, those who must rejoice me. See, brothers and sisters, we have a We have a biblical obligation to one another to rejoice one another, to bring joy to one another, to edify one another, to build the body of Christ up by bringing joy, imparting joy to each other. And you cannot do that if you are on the sidelines of the church. You can't do that if you're apathetic towards the body of Christ. You can't do that if you come to church to be a spectator and sit by and see what people have got to offer you. There has to be a reciprocal dynamic. We must water others if we desire to be watered. We have to give in order to get. We have to bless in order to be blessed. It's that simple. I know that in the church, the church is often plagued by people who cannot connect. I hear this so much. Yeah, I went to that church, couldn't connect. Went to this church, couldn't connect. Went over here, couldn't get connected. Nobody reached out to me. I had no real friends there. I didn't make any meaningful connections there. Well, how many people did you try to connect with? How many people did you try to get in their life and care for them and and, and pray for them and be there for them as a real true friend? Oh, brothers and sisters, it runs both ways. If you don't want people to pursue you long enough, guess what? People will stop pursuing you. Those that want friends must be friendly. But Paul was confident that they did share the same joy. And this confidence, I think, gave him the patience to wait and to see how things were going to work out, to see that ultimately and finally there would be joy produced by this severe letter that he had written them. And you really see that in chapter 7 as he begins to kind of list out what happens, that this letter, as harsh as it was ultimately did produce joy because it produced repentance. See, that's the other aspect of ministry is that we don't try to get people to be happy at the expense of allowing people to be sinful. No, brothers and sisters, that is not true joy. That's a false joy. And there are many, many, many churches that are built on a foundation like that, that they will just allow their people to live in whatever sin they want to live in. They will not execute church. They will not practice church discipline if it came up behind them and bit them. Some churches are so committed to not practicing church discipline that it seems like their commitment is more for the sin of the church than for the holiness of the church. Brothers and sisters, church discipline is a gift that God has given the church Church discipline is a way that God is going to keep his church pure. Church discipline is the way that God has uh, ordained that his church be purged from leaven. And it is a gift and it is a blessing, as hard and as much sorrow as it often causes. It must be done. It must be done. In the same way that if you have a disease in your body and you have to go through an excruciating operation to remove whatever lump or disease-causing virus you have or whatever, if we have to amputate, it must be done if you're to survive. And that's what God has given the church But when the church is united and has the same joy, it produces this endurance. It gave Paul this endurance to wait. It gave Paul the endurance to be able to see how it would go, to be able to endure with great anguish all of the pain that came with with being patient and waiting on the Corinthians to do what's right. And it also produces diligence. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 22, because there, the Apostle Paul brings up uh, the subject of the Jerusalem collection, and he talks about the delegation that was sent out with Titus and several brothers, anonymous brothers that aren't even named, okay? And I just found this amazing little insight in there. He says in verse 22, We have sent with them, that is Titus and the brothers with him in the delegation, Our brother, some anonymous brother, who has incredible characteristics, by the way, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things. And then look at this. But now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. You see that? When this brother knew that the Corinthians were on board... When he knew that the Corinthians were united, intent on one purpose, and that they were willing to file in and to participate and to contribute to this collection, it made the diligent more diligent. I love it and I see it all the time. I see this dynamic working itself out in the church all the time. Right? It just takes a little participation to make people more willing to participate, more diligent. I tell you what, the unity of the church produces more diligence in the diligent. It produces more encouragement in those who encourage people. It produces more zeal in those who are zealous. It makes people more evangelistic who are evangelistic. In other words, it's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, a self-replenishing body. A body, an organism, a building that is being built up in Christ until it achieves its mature stature by building and edifying each other by what every joint and ligament supplies. But nothing zaps the life out of a pastor and out of a church and its leaders more than apathy, indifference, more than stoical attitudes in the church. It's very sad, but there are, there are too many joyless, stoical Christians in the church. That are not moved by what they hear because they're too busy critiquing what they hear. <laughs> See, they're they're here to criticize, they're not here to be challenged or to be edified or to be built up. Brothers and sisters, our church is a theological church, an exegetical church. We love doctrine, we love theology here. But brothers and sisters, don't ever mistake that for a sign of true grace or sanctification. You can be the biggest doctrine head in the world. You can be so unbalanced, you know, you walk out the door and you kind of lopsided. You're so, you know, all you care about is just, you know, theology and facts and, you know, but you, will you weep with those that weep? Like Jesus. Will you rejoice with those that rejoice? Will you lay down your life for your brethren? I tell you what, sometimes I worry about myself That with all the knowledge and all the wisdom that God has given me, does the the level of love and joy and and care and concern for people, does it match the things that I know? Oh, we need that so bad in the church. And Paul hopes that by sharing these same sorts of attitudes, that the church will be united, that it will be committed to one another, that they would stand together, that they would... uh, sorrow in the same things and rejoice in the th- in the same things it's a beautiful picturesque uh, a picture of what the body of Christ should be and what it could be if we are committed to this mutual joy lastly i want you to see that a joy producing ministry is rooted in the display of holy affection and love look at verse 4 For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Some commentators translate that phrase, that last phrase there, especially for you, as intensely for you. They're trying to draw out the meaning, the heart, the passion, the emotion behind it. The Apostle Paul was not a Stoic. (laughs) He was a very emotional man. He was a man that felt very deeply. One of the reasons I chose 2 Corinthians as one of the letters to begin our church with and exposit is because in 2 Corinthians, boy, you get a glimpse of the Apostle Paul unlike anything you see almost anywhere else. You get a real picture of the man's heart and his real heart for the purity of the church, his, his inner workings and how he worked and, and how he thought and how he felt and how he lived his life. You get a real uh, inside look at the Apostle Paul. And here it's no different. We get a look at his heart that he loved the church so much. Quite contrary to wanting to simply produce sorrow, he loved them and he wanted them to know it. He wanted them to understand just how much it took to get to them and to write to them. He says, with much affliction and anguish of heart. Now, that word much modifies both affliction and anguish. There was a lot of affliction and a lot of anguish in his heart. Now, the first word, affliction, we've already seen. He's talked about it over and over in chapter 1, talking about the affliction that we have, the affliction that God comforts us in, talking about the affliction that he had in Asia. But the second word is very interesting, the word anguish, because it's only used one other time in the entire New Testament Greek Bible, and that's in Luke 21, 25. There, Jesus talking about the second coming, and he talks about the anguish or the dismay of the earth the turmoil of the earth, the utter distress of the earth, you find this word sunakes. You find it in extra biblical literature right around the time of the New Testament. You find it in the didache. The didache is an early church manual that existed to kind of elaborate on the different practices of the church. They used it in the didache to refer to a man being locked in prison. You see, because at the very essence of this word is the the, the concept of compression of being pressed together, being locked in like a prison cell. Paul is saying his heart was oppressed. It was compressed like a, his heart was in the cell of affliction. He had the weight of the anguish of the purity of this church on his heart. It was in him night and day. And it, it caused great emotion. Look at this. I wrote you with many tears. You know that Paul often wept for the church. You remember Paul there with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, what he tells them? That he did not cease to warn them day and night for a period of three years with tears, warning them, be careful. False teachers will arise from among you and they will lead the sheep astray. You have a perfect balance. And the Apostle Paul, I believe, Kent Hughes, says something very insightful. He says, Paul cared enough to comfort them, even if it caused sorrow, but cared too much for them to pay them another painful visit so that he would rather write to them a severe letter. And that's the thing. That is the trick of ministry, to know when to care enough and when when to care too much about certain things, to guard against certain things, and to make sure other things take place. For Paul, sorrow and love were not ultimately exclusive, as if you can only have love or sorrow. No, Paul saw that even God would work through the sorrow, if it is good and godly sorrow, to produce joy and love in his people. Quickly, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, he talks about how his letter caused great sorrow. But he says, I don't regret it. In verse 8, I don't regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though for a little while. It might have caused you sorrow for a little while. He says, verse 9, but now I rejoice that you were made sorrowful. Why? Because you were made sorrowful. It's not an end of itself. He says, but that you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Godly sorrow, biblical sorrow, the sorrow that is according to God's will, sorrow for sin, yields, if you repent, yields the beautiful, bountiful fruit of the joy of righteousness. And that's what Paul says was after. This is the love that he had for them. He was willing to confront them even if it was painful. And I tell you, any good, loving pastor must have the courage to confront you on your sin. Must. And if he doesn't, he doesn't love you. Sadly, we encounter people all the time, young people, old people. They go to various churches, this church and that church, and they talk about how their church would never discipline anybody. I had somebody telling me that in their church, they, will not, they won't even discipline a person if he's living living a homosexual lifestyle. He said, why would we do that? We'd just scare him away. And what I told him was, well, that's the most hateful thing that you can do to somebody. You are patting that person's back all the way to hell. And I don't hate people enough to do that to them. But a loving shepherd has to have the courage to confront. It's not easy. Listen, I hate confrontation more than anybody, but I'm called to confront you with the authority of God's Word when you are in error. And I have to do it if I really truly love you. And if I don't love you, I won't do it. But if I do love you, I will do it. But I will do it with gentleness, even though I have to do it. Like Paul told the Corinthians, look, he said to them later in the, in the, in the, in the book, he says, I, I admonish you by the gentleness of Christ, that I would not have to come and be bold against you. Even then, when discipline is fitting, when discipline is proper, you still must maintain a gentle, loving, broken attitude. Just because someone is in sin doesn't give the pastor a right to fly off the handle, to become domineering, tyrannical. To become heavy handed. It doesn't give you the right to get angry at them. If anything, it should be an incentive to look to uh, to ourselves, right? What does the Bible say? Galatians chapter 1, or Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Look, if anybody is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness and meekness, looking to yourself, considering yourself, lest you be tempted, right? We are called to do it. With gentleness and with brokenness and with intense love for the brethren. And so that's Paul's heart, and that's Paul's joy producing ministry. That is what it means to have apostolic joy in the church. A, a joy producing ministry will produce this love, it will, uh, it will produce a mutual joy, a, a, a reciprocal joy not just the joy of the pastor but the joy of everyone and also it will produce it, it will it will not be a heavy-handed ministry rather we will shepherd out of a desire to see sanctification take place in the people of God as Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 my children with whom i am again in labor pain until christ is formed in you. There is a stubbornness. There should be. There should be a healthy stubbornness in any pastoral ministry, a greediness to see sanctification in His people. I want to see it so bad in some of you, in all of you, and all of us, and in me included, but in some of you in certain areas of your lives, and I close my eyes because I don't want to look at anybody just in case I get blamed for anything. But there are certain things in certain people's lives in this room that I want to see growth. I'm eager to see sanctification. I want to see things click. I want to see things get in orbit. I want to see things come into alignment for you. And I pray by the grace of God, He will do it for His own glory, for the purity of His own church. Let's pray. Father, You are the one who desires a pure church, a chaste bride, so that you might present to yourself a bride that is spotless, without blemish. Oh, God, help us, Lord, in this place to take that calling serious. Father, to break up the fallow ground of our hearts, Father, to be like Josiah and reform every area of our life that is not in keeping, not in step with the gospel. We don't want to live in contrary to your glory. We don't want to live in contradiction to your perfections. But Lord, we know because of indwelling sin, we are in a lifelong war of sanctification. Give us endurance. Give us strength, God. Help us to take courage. Remind us, Lord, of what Paul told the Philippians, that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and with trembling, knowing that it is You who is at work in us both to will and to do for Your pleasure. Father, please accomplish all of Your pleasure in our lives. For the glory of Your name and the glory of Your Son, Jesus